Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. And yes, we're back for another episode of What on Earth. Good to have you with us. Uh, I'm James Scotland. With me, as always, is Tennant Reid and Paul Hodson. And today we're going to talk about how to fund the transition economy. People always ask me, when I'm talking to business people, they're always saying, yes, but how will we fund this? This is going to be quite a transition, not of technology and uh, attitudes and ideas, but we're going to have to transition funding as well. So let's talk about that, guys. Before we do, though, how are you? How are you both? Tenet, I think you've been in Townsville recently. How was Townsville? How's the transition? What's going on up there? Uh, there's a lot going on up there. So I was a guest uh, of uh, Townsville Enterprise at their um, Green Energy Futures Summit. And uh, there were uh, civic leaders, project developers, heavy industry, uh, people from, from all over the North Queensland region, very enthusiastic about a, a whole range of developments. Um, they've got uh, pumped hydro projects in the offing, transmission. Uh, the, there are a lot of fans there of the of the Copper String 2.0 uh, proposal. Um, there's uh, very large green hydrogen and uh, renewable electricity development projects, uh, including uh, some being pushed by end users. Uh, so the, um, the, the local uh, metals processing uh, industry is uh, very keen on um, making a, a transition pathway. So, you know, it's, it's complicated to sift which projects are firmly going ahead versus which ones need some kind of uh, helping hand from state or federal finance, uh, but it's all happening. And uh, deadly rivalry between um, uh, Townsville and Gladstone for who's going to be the epicentre of, um, of the hydrogen economy. Uh, it's just staggering what's going on around the country, though, isn't it? And let's talk about end user in a minute. But it is staggering. I've been doing a lot of work with our Adelaide office in the last few days talking about what's going on there, and, and maybe we'll talk about that in the future. Uh, Townsville, Adelaide, Perth, North WA, Tassie, there's, there's a, exciting things happening everywhere. And uh, it's good that you're able to get up to Townsville. I'm jealous. I'm stuck in my, my office at the moment, although I'm going to Sydney next week, so we'll see how that goes. Paul, I'm talking I about stuck in the office. I mostly saw the inside of the hotel, but uh, <laughs> there, there was a nice sight outside the windows. Oh, no. Tell me that you had fun up there or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, I had fun talking about this stuff. Of course. It's the only fun I need. <laughs> you live the life, don't you? Well, while you were doing that, Paul, I see that you're finished some training as well as all the other things you do. You amaze me how much you get done every week. But in amongst everything else you've done, you've completed your training to become, if I'm right, a certified economic developer. Um, that's great. But how do you find time and why are you so committed to lifelong learning? It's one of the things I've you know, admired about you over many years. Uh, look, yeah, thanks, James. Uh, look, it's fantastic. I mean, I've been doing economic development all my all my career, but um, uh, but I think the more I, the older I get, the less I know, or or certainly the more there is to know. And so, I think lifelong learning is so important. I think just being um, being curious. I like to be curious, um, and uh, it was fantastic networking, supporting a great organisation, Economic Development Australia, and working with other economic development practitioners and. 
Um, one thing about economic development that I know is that it's all about impact and it's about measuring impact and it's about having uh, uh, a demonstrable uh, effect on, on jobs and investment and all the types of things that, that we're really trying to do. So you know me, I'm, I'm very much about impact. So it was a great, great fit, um, had, had a blast. It was a little bit difficult doing weekly assignments again. I, uh, oh. I, I you know, I don't, don't enjoy doing that too much, but it was, it was great. And, uh, yeah, I just, I think you just have to, there's always, there's always new things to be learning, uh, always people to be meeting, um, always new perspectives to be, uh, to be challenged by as well. Yeah, my, um, you know, my, 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 my dear old mum, who I said was way too smart for her own good, she used to say whenever I said, I'm bored, she'd say, well, be curious. There's no boredom in curiosity. Um, and I'd say, how do you get curious? She'd say, well, just, that's a good question. <laughs> that is the, that's, the, that's the point, isn't it? Uh, I think we need to be curious when it comes to uh, the transition. One of the things that uh, people mention to me all the time is, is this idea about, um, it's not like they all of a sudden thought of something and think, we should be thinking about this. And the answer is there's many people thinking about it uh, and there's many aspects to it which are complex. And when people say to me, how do we fund the transition? I say to them, the question you're really asking is how do I, you know, make money? How do I, how do I find the business opportunity in that, in that question? Because we're going to struggle. We're going to figure out how to fund it, but there's going to be plenty of opportunities in that. So let's talk about that uh, this episode. To me, it seems like... Uh, in the 30 or 35 years that we've been talking about moving from just a science debate on climate change to an economic debate on climate change, there's two main themes that have arisen. One is this idea of user pays, you know, um, the user will pay for the transition. And the other one is this idea that if there is no, if you're not penalised for doing something, you'll continue to do it. So, you know, we need to inflict some sort of penalty in order to get people to change habits. Um, they're not the same, are they? User pays doesn't affect the people who are creating the damage. Uh, and so we need to resolve those two things, although neither of them have been resolved. And the other point is is that uh, the, the, the economic debate is about deliberately injecting funds into specific parts of the economy in order to manage the whole economy. We do this in agriculture, of course, when there's a drought on, we inject money into the farming sector to make it last because we need it for other parts of the economy. And we probably need to do this in 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 the transition. And of course, you know, back in the times when we we're talking about uh, cigarettes, we put a lot of a lot of money on buying cigarettes. You know, we said to people, you have to pay a penalty for, for doing this. So it's quite a complex debate. I haven't explained it very well, but perhaps you could pick it up and explain that a bit better about the difficulty of trying to figure out how to fund the transition. Well, so I think we need to um, we need to think about different parts of this challenge. So right now, um, wind power and solar power are. Um, like the cheapest new sources of megawatt hours. Uh, if you don't, if you if you're not super fussed about when those megawatt hours come, it's by far cheaper to uh, get it from from wind and solar than from new coal, new gas, new anything else. Um, so you might say, oh, that's going to fund itself. If it's if it's cheaper, it's it's super competitive. Um, now there are a bunch of um, remaining challenges there, including. Like all the stuff about integration of renewables, 
but also the scale of investment required to uh, achieve energy transition with the the parts of this that are that are the cheapest is still very large. Uh, Fortescue were in the the news yesterday with uh, the sort of the the high end of their ambition currently is to have. 450 gigawatts of global um, wind and solar capacity uh, associated with their uh, green hydrogen production. Set aside everything else in the in the equation, just sorting out the the finance and the implementation for 450 gigawatts is a colossal challenge. Setting up the supply chains to um, match that is a colossal challenge. So there's, there's one set of issues, a big one. But then the other thing is, well, there's parts of the transition, uh, important technologies and practices that are not cost competitive um, in the current um, situation. Uh, so, I mean, the situation's probably changing uh, pretty rapidly for green hydrogen, but I would say... Um, if we think about um, direct air capture uh, of uh, carbon dioxide for sequestration beneath the earth, um, that, there we're currently talking probably thousands of US dollars a tonne um, cost to do that. Um, the, the hope is to get that down to 100 US dollars a tonne, maybe, maybe below that, still quite expensive. So how the, the challenges of making any of that stuff that is very expensive happen to the point where it can become less expensive, um, that is very serious. And, um, you know, polluter pays or user pays, um, government pays, um, you know, th there are probably a lot of different approaches to bridging those very large gaps, but you need a... a a, a different kind of policy and approach to the stuff that's very expensive but has prospects of getting cheaper than you do for the stuff that's cheaper now and ready to scale, but the challenges of scale are, are, are very big. Yeah, so, so you're as the market you're throwing down is that the scale also has to be factored in. The scale is is staggering. And from there, we try and figure it out. Paul, uh, now that I've tricked you into talking about economic development, how's, how do you see this issue? Um, it, look, it's very comp complex, um, as, as Tennant said. Um, and I think, uh, yes, you want to try and bring the cost down as much as possible, bring down the price. But there are so many other factors that go into why people make decisions and why even companies or countries make decisions. Um, it's not just on a price or a cost basis. Um, uh, you know, I would, uh, you know, I, I uh, if I'm traveling, I might go into a convenience store and buy something because it's there and I might pay twice or even three times what I might pay at a, at a large scale supermarket because it's there. Um, uh, do we, do people, you know, follow brands and prices on, you know, your car's running empty on fuel and there's a service station up ahead and you're, you're heading off to the, for a, a day at the beach or something. Uh, you're not going to say, well, I'll wait until it's cheaper before I buy it, right? So, um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of decisions I think in that. Uh, there's lots of levers that you can push. Um, some of it's around brand. Um, uh, sometimes it's around not at the consumer level, but people make decisions around uh, you know the geopolitics, for example. Um, and this will happen in the energy supply chains as well. It won't be just the lowest cost producer. 
Um, there'll be a whole range of uh, other brand risks, reputation risks, uh, accessibility, availability, um, and alignment as well with strategic partners that will make uh, a big difference. So I think it is very complex. Um, and I think that's why I find economic development really fascinating and industry development um, is because it's not all just rational kind of cost reduction kind of uh, figures. There'll be people that um, will, will pay a premium for green energy and, and maybe have for 20, 30 years, maybe some of they were early uh, participants who put solar panels on their on their on their roof, right? Uh, there'll be others who just want to pay the, the absolute cheapest. Um, so I think in a lot of this, what you're really trying to do is is not muddy it too much. You want to com- create the quickest path to a compelling value proposition. Uh, what's the quickest path? So it becomes a general value proposition that people will make the decision on not necessarily because there's necessarily a subsidy that's long-term or another incentive to do it. You're actually trying to really nail what that value proposition is and get there as quick as possible for the target market. In an upcoming podcast, I'd like us to talk about ESG and the various governance issues that are that are in place. But in, in researching that, I discovered that uh, a majority of Australians have said that they will pay a premium for responsible brands and they will punish non-responsible brands. They want to see ESG actually being being becoming um, becoming part of life. But there's a limit to it, isn't it? <laughs> you know, there's a ceiling to how much they'll be able to, able to pay. Oh, look, yeah. I, I, would, I, was, I was just going to say, look, I mean, uh, if you survey people, and you ask them um, what decisions they will make um, when they go shopping, for example, uh, you'll get a very different response to what actually ends up in people's trolleys and baskets. At the, at the, Always at the a problem of marketing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this, is, this marketing. is often, it's often the challenge of things like, um, you know, Australian made's great, um, but people, when they're busy down there, are looking through, they're, they're inundated with music, they're inundated with discounts, uh, they're, they're busy, they're pushing their trolley down the aisle, uh, probably kids in tow. Um, this this brand is two for one this week. Um, in it goes, right? Uh, not many people are looking at the label at the back. Uh, they're, they're weighing it up around the Australian supply chain and how many jobs are going to be, uh, uh, you know, affected in the Riverina or anything like that. It's, it's in the supermarket and off it goes. But if you ask people in a static setting, uh, about whether they would prefer to buy Australian or buy from an ethical source or something, uh, you'll actually get a much purer response, but it might not be what you'll see in reality. That's the whole point of, of home brands and supermarkets. I'd rather buy the, not picking on any brands, but they'd, they'd rather buy the Woolworths Tim Tam equivalent than actually Tim Tam because it's a few cents cheaper, uh, even though it's not necessarily in their long-term interests. Sorry, Tenet, you had something to say too, I think. Yeah, so I'm in two minds on this um, green premiums uh, from from buyers uh, issue because uh, it can make, like there can be a significant uh, kernel of demand for a, a new and um, in some ways better product uh, that is extremely important to getting a new market going. Uh, the, the kind of commitments that uh, major um, 
international businesses have made in the last year or so to um, sort of 5% targets this decade for procurement of clean steel, clean aviation, clean shipping, and so on. Like those seem like genuinely significant things. 5% is not an energy transition, but going from zero to something for the supply side of um, of those services and products um, requires somebody to be on the buy side. Uh, so, you know, that, that's really important. On the other hand, to actually get all the way to a transformed energy system, transformed economy, you can't just be relying uh, on consumers to work it all out themselves to, to balance all this stuff you know whether it's it's in the um, the supermarket aisle or elsewhere. You know we, I I heard uh, recently about some challenges in uh, supply in some markets of the the spice turmeric, where uh, some some suppliers in some countries have been mixing lead into the turmeric because it produces a much more vibrant yellow. Uh, that's uh, that's very appealing to the eye. Um, now, that's not a problem that you would you would pursue by asking whether consumers are willing to pay a premium for a guaranteed no lead product. Uh, that's a that's a task for let's get um, all the bad product out of the market. Um, and you know there can be arguments about what are the most effective tools, um, but it's it's not just a um, leave it up to the consumer to work it out for themselves type issue. Let's let's leave the sort of consumer part of it for the moment and move to a broader industry issue. Last episode, we were talking about electricity and how it's generation and poles and poles and wires, I think you said, Tenant, and then it's the end user and the pricing and wholesalers. There's quite a complex structure to the electricity ending up at my factory door. Um Let's talk about about how we transition that to a greener, uh, a, a greener electricity generation. Um, there's been a report by the Global Wind Energy Council that says we will need 390 gigawatts of wind farm per year by 2030, uh, years away. 390 gigawatts um, of wind farm electricity or wind farm energy. Uh, by 2030, and in 2021, last year, less than a quarter of that was produced. So we're falling way short on, on our targets. Uh, at In 2008, it cost $1.7 million for one megawatt of wind turbine, uh, but by 2020, it had dropped to 700, almost, you know, more than half. But here's the problem. The people that make the turbines have been making bigger and bigger turbines. Siemens is the world's largest. They've been making bigger, more powerful turbines, but they have announced that it's not profitable. They just don't want to. The cost of minerals, particularly critical minerals for turbines, is prohibitive. The transporting of turbines and the major big things that go into making a turbine is prohibitive. And and, uh, with opportunities in turmoil and war, there's other turbines to be made. So we're seeing a slowdown in the production of turbines, which is just one part. How do we do that? Do, does, does that mean that, you know, the whole economy pays for the for the, for the the turbines and do some sort of build, own, operate, transfer type of arrangement? Or 
does that become a, a national asset or do we, do we kind of take it to the, the market and see if we can raise funds to operate at a loss for a while? How's the best way around this? Well, I, there's yeah. a lot in that. You go, Paul. No, look, well, I was going to say, I mean, and I think this is the heart of what this podcast is about, James, which is the supply chain. Um, and regardless of where you are in the supply chain, you really need to understand where value is being created through that supply chain and where value isn't being created. Uh, it creates a risk. Um, uh, it, the same we're looking at in, for example, scaling green hydrogen. Um, if if the green hydrogen producers are going to the solar industry and saying we need one cent a kilowatt hour uh, or less uh, solar and we energy and we need it transmitted to our hydrogen production plant and we need it 24-7 because we want to run these electrolyzers around the clock, um, you know, there would be the, solar invest, investors in the solar industry would be hard pressed at the moment to be able to find any way of making any money out of that. Which would mean that it would that they would go well. That's thanks very much, but uh, we, there's nothing in it for us. Um, and so, you know, we're going to be as strong as the weakest link in this chain. Um, and uh, and and some of that might dictate there where we go next on the energy transition and the in the investments into, you know, the the type of minerals we might have access to. Uh, the type of uh, technology, therefore, we're going to use, not necessarily just the the capacity uh, that we've got of particular renewables in particular regions. It'll be availability of a whole bunch of stuff, including skills, including uh, the, the componentry, uh, but also soft stuff like the regulatory environment or the, or the access to finance um, and some of these business and commercial models as well. So um, it's, a very, um, it's a very complex picture when you look at this stuff. And, and really, again, going back to being curious, if you're curious about what's happening outside your business, what's happening outside your, uh, your household, and you're actually understanding where all this works. Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating picture that, that gets painted um, and it uh, enables you, I think, to position yourself much more contextually in, in where, where these trends are going um, and, and, and identify opportunities. Uh, are you saying that if we look at this issue as uh, uh, an upgrade of the 20th century NSAT, in other words, as a network, we may be going down the wrong path. That maybe there's other options and other innovations of smaller generation plants, different ways of doing it. We have a, we have a. I think sometimes we we have a way of looking at the world in the way we've just been looking at the world. So we have an incremental way of it. So if we've been looking at a big centralized energy system, um, we're we're looking for what's replacing coal. What's replacing baseload power generation? What's when when actually that might not be the right answer. Uh, the right answer is actually to to take a step back and look at the changing landscape of all of this, and go what's now the best way of de of deploying that? What's the best way of capturing solar energy? Is it maybe not through PVs? Maybe it's not through uh, panels that go on rooftops or or ground mounted. Maybe there's a different way of doing it. Now, I don't know what those solutions are, but being curious as to how you might do it, you know, the 58 million petajoules of solar radiation that hits the Australian landmass each year um, is, a, is a nonsensical figure. Um, but, you know, are there better ways of harvesting that, or better ways of capturing that each year? Um, uh, and, and that's the curiosity that drives innovation, I think, and, and, a, and an entrepreneurial approach. 
And we did import those ideas from the Northern Hemisphere, which might be totally different from the environments that we, we have here. We might be able to come up with different ideas. Tenet, are policy people looking at it this way or are they uh, looking at the, you know, the new improved version of the old, the old way? So, look, we've had uh, in Eastern Australia, we've had 20 years, a bit more than 20 years now, of a, um, a system, uh, a, a market system built around uh, an energy-only market promoting the uh, efficient utilisation of the, the, a very large capital base, all these uh, generation and network assets handed off by the old state uh, electricity uh, commissions and corporations, which built everything in the heroic age, the heroic but in some ways very inefficient age um, of the, the 40s through the 70s. Like um, the, the 20, last 20 years have not seen that much stuff get built. Uh, and what we may be looking at now is a sort of the new heroic age, the formal uh, market structure that is in place is, is not really behind any of the investment that has been happening in recent years. It's all been brought in by different forms of government policy or by governments just directly investing or, or requiring investments in particular assets. Uh, and, you know, New South Wales has introduced its electricity infrastructure roadmap. The implementation is still being finalised. But that is um, really, if you, if you look at the, the update to the latest um, electricity statement of opportunities, which is meant to be a document about signalling where there's a gap in supply emerging, that there's a place for private investment, the latest update to that report is essentially saying, well, whether there's a gap or not depends on the implementation of New South Wales policy. Um, that's that's the big swing factor now. Uh, and so that could be, like the feds have been doing their piece of that, other states have been doing their piece of that. Um, there's more and less markety, more and less efficient versions of that highly interventionist, get big stuff built mindset but broadly that mindset is is what we're looking at and so for pointy-headed neoliberal economic rationalists like me um we can like maybe anticipate in 20 or 25 years a new uh, age of efficiency uh, when there's a new equivalent to the Keating era national competition policy that's taking whatever new set of massive, amazing economy transforming, but maybe not perfectly efficiently um, built and operated assets, handed off to a, a new market design to say, you know, squeeze more value out of this for the, for the Australians of the second half of the century. Um, but yet for the time being, um, it's it's a it's a very interventionist world. I would say one extra thing, which is on this question of the the cost of building new wind turbines and the cost of building new everything really at the moment is 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 higher. Um, a year ago or so, I was hearing from uh, project developers saying, you know, futures prices are so low, can't possibly get new projects away for for this money. Um, the, the prices are going to have to rise. 
Well, prices are rising. They're not rising really because the cost of new wind and solar is rising, although it is. Um, they're rising because coal prices are through not just through the roof, they're into orbit. Um, and gas prices uh, are, are very high as well. Uh, and so futures electricity prices are enormous. Renewables generators and existing coal generators and gas generators with old supply contracts are going to be absolutely coining it for the next few years. Um, what happens beyond that is up for grabs. And um, the more efficiently we can deliver new energy infrastructure, not just the, the generation, but the transmission to connect it all up, um, how efficiently we can coordinate all the distributed energy resources um, that are going to be a major, major part of the energy landscape. They already are, but they'll be really a colossal part of it. Um, the better we can do that stuff, the more workable and affordable and, and secure and reliable all of this will be. Uh, and so there, there's uh, there's a lot to play for. Yeah, I'll come back to this thing about, about the, the big profits going on at the moment. Uh, but your point, your earlier point, and Paul's point uh, about the um, improving the current system and changing from coal to some other source using much the same system versus a complete rethink is going to be one of the one of the debates that happens, isn't it? We we are at a, a point of time where we could where we could fundamentally change things, disrupt, as they say, in, in business. And I think there's an opportunity for business people to say, you know what, there is opportunities here for us to build a disruptive system. Whilst the, the, you know, the, the, the big systems, the big projects are being, are being debated, I could possibly come in and come up with an innovative idea. So uh, for all the innovators out there, get, get your hat, hats on, let's go. Back to, um, all right. Yeah, back back to the the big profits that are going on at the moment. Um, came out today that that Shell has announced a quarterly profit of nine point one billion dollars. Shell has made nine point one billion dollars quarterly profit uh, for the first Q of uh, this year. Um, Italy is in the process of charging what's called a windfall tax. So their idea is that Italians are struggling to pay for fueling and for heating and whatever. So they're going to charge the the, the companies that are making a lot of profit, they're going to charge, charge them a higher tax and use that money to pay for, uh, to help the, the, the person in the street. Is that right? Is that what a windfall tax is? We keep hearing this term. And is that a reasonable way of funding the, the transition? without going into politics because we can't go into politics? Well, how the money's collected is one thing. What it's used for is another. And um, uh, this is, to my knowledge, is, is not specifically the case with the Italian proposal, but it has been the case with a, a, a lot of what's going on in Europe and elsewhere. Um, the, the immediate effort is to um, reduce uh, taxes and charges and provide rebates on... Um, petrol consumption, on electricity consumption, on gas consumption, um, that's that's not funding the transition. That's uh, easing the, the the pain of the status quo. Um, and like as a like the I don't think we should underestimate the intense uh, pain and, and challenges facing um, especially poorer households in Europe right now. And for that matter, um, like 
energy users in in Asia, uh, gas users in Asia, spot prices are absolutely colossal. Um, so addressing that is extremely important. But ideally, you want to address it in ways that set both individuals and uh, society are better for the longer term. And so uh, investments in um, energy efficiency, energy transition, uh, conversion, uh, electrification of transport and so on, you know, those make great medium and long-term sense. The problem is that they're either not fast to, um, uh, to roll out or they're facing the same sorts of supply chain challenges we've been talking about. So you probably need to do a bit of both, of um, short-term relief and long-term investment. Um, whether uh, a, um, a windfall profits tax is a sensible way to go, like ordinarily, I think people like me would say, uh, well, if you're making it less profitable to have something that people want, then you're going to get less investment in the supply than you would want in the supply of that thing. Um, if it's super profitable to be an electricity generator, surely you're going to get people pile into the electricity generation sector uh, and you're going to get more supply and prices are going to come down. Now, that life is more complicated than that argument. Um, and there's maybe there is a case for unusual measures. There's another proposal at the moment, which may well happen uh, for... Um, tariffs in Europe on uh, Russian oil imports uh, with the idea that this is going to um, keep within Europe money that otherwise would have gone to Russia. Ordinarily, you know, with a, with a tariff on oil imports, you'd probably say, oh, well, the price of oil in, in Europe is going to go up. Uh, but Russia can't easily um, sell that oil to other customers. They probably will accept a lower price for that oil or, 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 or pay this tariff on top of it. So we're in unusual times. I think hard and fast econocrat judgments uh, probably need to be rethought, but I'm still unsure that windfall profits tax is the best way to go. So we're sort of seem to be going down this path of interventionist, is that the right way to go? Is it a government issue? Um, and whilst they're trying to figure that out, there is still these opportunities for business people to say, well, now there's a, there's a hole. Paul? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's, well, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, there's lots of different ways of funding it. Um, I mean, obviously, the Norwegians have, have spent a lot of money funding the tra energy transition through uh, through the, the returns that they've got through particularly the oil and gas sector uh, as a sovereign fund. Um, so uh, there are, look, there are different ways of doing it. Um, you know, it can be done in small scale, can be at large scale, can be done interventionist, can be done um, in a much more sort of, you know, laissez-faire kind of market approach. Um, but, you know, if you really want to drive change, you really need to shape it, I think. Uh, so you, you, you do need to take a much more proactive approach and to do things at scale and to do things with the right aggregation and coordination that's required for something at this scale. I think if we just let it uh, to everyone, because look, renewable energy is democratizing energy in a lot of ways, right? So mm. if we're mm. looking at you know replacing, for example, a national fuel infrastructure system, um, allowing everyone, anyone that's got access to a little bit of water and some technology and a solar farm to put in some refueling infrastructure um, might not be the best 
it might be a really suboptimal use of, of, of resources to do that. It'd be like uh, uh, putting in a national mobile phone network uh, system um, and I can just go and buy a tower and I can put it up. And as long as, you know, I, I want to put up a tower with my technology and have a couple of people use it, um, that, that, that again would be a poor way of rolling that out. Uh, sometimes you need to coordinate it. Uh, governments have done great jobs of things like reverse auctions on renewables. Um, maybe we need to see some of that. You know, governments setting big, big targets around. You know, we need ten thousand gigawatt hours, or sorry, ten thousand gigawatts of renewables. Uh, we need this much of refueling infrastructure. We need all this kind of stuff, and we aggregate it, um, and then we, you know, we, we we put it out. We put it out to market. We get people to respond. Um, we work out who wants to play. Who wants to be part of it? Um, and, and maybe there's an activist approach in doing that. But um, you can't you can't just leave it to everyone if you want to have if you want to coordinate. Um, and it's it is going to require investments of, uh, of of big money, as as you are seeing in parts of the world, particularly out out of the EU. Yeah, we've got to keep in mind the scale, isn't it? Like it's it's, it's a massive transition. Let's let's um, move over to the retail sector now. There's a report out by Kinsey's McKinsey. Uh, about the need to make the retail sector net zero. Uh, and that's difficult to do. And, of course, they talk about scope one, two, and three, about not just what one part of it does, but the whole supply chain of the sector. And who's going to pay for those, those um, the transitional costs? Um, but when you read the report, the thing that comes through the most to me is the need that maybe it's time to completely innovate, completely change retail as we know it. Uh, you know, this whole idea of 100 years ago of someone making it, selling it to a wholesaler, the wholesaler puts a markup on it and sells it to a retailer, the retailer puts a markup on it and sells it to the, to the consumer. Maybe it's an outdated system and the... Um, uh, maybe the you know the, the Apple model of having a store where they show you the products and say buy it anywhere, buy it online, buy it from your mate down the road. We don't care. We just, the, the store is a marketing cost, not a, a profit center. My point is is that there's opportunities right now for innovation. Do you think that's fair? Do you think we can say this gives us the chance to rethink a lot of different different areas and probably the you know the pandemic kicked in here as well as made us start thinking about how we do things. So I am of two minds here. I think that um, the, uh, like the, the, the real economy is changing in all kinds of ways. Um, Digitalisation has, has gone a lot further and a lot faster than um many people would have expected uh, and revolutions in the way stuff is is bought and sold are happening you know there's there's overhype in some of that um, I I am not particularly excited by crypto uh, stuff um, for example um, but like I've I've shopped at uh, one of these um, Amazon um, just walk out. Uh, mini supermarkets with uh, no cash registers, uh, no no queuing. You just pick something up off the shelf, put it in your bag, walk out, and you charge for it. It's <laughs> pretty amazing. I expect that um, a lot of retail is going to look very different um, in in not the, the not too distant future. But 
my other thought is that um, whether or not that is the case, um, we, we're going to need to have solutions for net zero for for that sector and its supply chains. Uh, and I don't know that we can we can assume what the answer is going to be. We're certainly going to be surprised. Um, and so we, we just need to be, um, we need to have net zero solutions and offerings that are robust to those outcomes. And I think, um, you know, if you're trying to get um, every, the, the last couple of decimal points of emissions out, uh, then you, you will need to tailor for, um, you know, what is the, the real level of, um, uh, of automation and um panopticons in retail stores versus um, uh, human staff. But if you're trying to get the big licks done, like the first 90 to 95%, well, you've probably got the same answers either way, which is um, heavy transport solutions, uh, industrial heat solutions, uh, and source of electricity. Uh, And and some stuff around agriculture. Yeah, so do the hard work. Don't just look for shiny new chances, opportunities. Get down and do the hard work. Yeah, uh, Paul, in, in, ever thought? Yeah, look, I mean, I think uh, in, in the early stages, there's a couple of things that happen. One is the kind of low-hanging fruit, um, which gets picked off early, which often then can't do the transformational mainstreaming of, of solutions. Uh, the other one also is sometimes, uh, you know, governments and others, large users can... Uh, can boost demand to actually, you know, do some of the, the heavy lifting that that uh, the tenants talking about. Um, once you get over that tipping point, um, then then the market does kick in, right? When things become cheaper, uh, they become uh, easy to put in. There's the regulatory framework. They're de-risked. Uh, capital for capital flows, um, and I think that's always the thing that you're trying to do is to try to how do you get it over that tipping point. Where, uh, where, where, where government and where others can kind of sit back and, um, and, and let, let the system kind of, you know, let, let capital flow where value is. Uh, but, but in that, those early stages, you do need to be a bit more interventionist, I think. And governments can be, you know, large procurers. They can, they can shape things. They can signal intent. They can provide long-term certainty um, around, around some of these issues. And I think they're... You know that that's what we're kind of seeing at the moment is that there's a lot of small projects, a little bit of toe in the water stuff happening, um, but not necessarily big, big uh, commercial money flowing. I mean, you talked about some of those windfall profits, um, the amount of that money being spent in, for example, renewables or green hydrogen, is not huge, um, even though they are windfall profits. So those companies are still investing in the products and services that people are demanding today. Um, so so it, it, it is a challenge. How do you pushing up that rock up that hill uh, before before the momentum builds and, and, and you can actually pull, pull away from it a little bit? I mean, solar went through this with PV. Uh, lots of incentives, lots of, but over time that's kind of been pulled back a little bit because solar, is, as tenants mentioned, has become really quite cheap and accessible. Um, it's become, uh, the, the, the quality is less varied than it was. Uh, there are lots of installers that do it. Um, there are people that have set regulations around this area. 
people are much more comfortable doing it now and they can see a direct uh, a direct benefit for them um so so i think they're the they're the kind of things that i think of when in 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 this conversation One last, uh, one last point uh, to wrap up with in, in ways of which to fund the, the transition. Um, Tesla had reported a record profit, uh, but in reading their, their statements, it appears that a lot of that or a substantial part of that profit came from something like carbon credits that uh, they did with other car manufacturers. Uh, Tenet, I think you understand and you can explain this better. Uh, but this is another way of funding the, uh, the transition as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's it's a it's a variation on user pays because uh, that um, regulatory system in the US there are there are national um, fuel and carbon efficiency um, regulations on the new vehicle fleet. Uh, vehicle suppliers have got to meet those targets across the, the the whole of the fleet that they help supply each year, and those who do better than their target can generate a credit which is saleable to those who who feel like they're going to miss their targets. And you can get it you can get these credits by having more fuel efficient vehicles, but you can get them also by having all electric vehicles or um, vehicles with a with a lower global warming potential uh, air conditioner. So uh, ultimately though, the, you know, the, these transfers of uh, value among um, vehicle suppliers, ultimately this translates into the sticker prices paid uh, by consumers and uh, cleaner vehicles will have a, a lower sticker price as a result of this and uh, dirtier vehicles will have a higher one. Um, so the, ultimately the user is paying even though it, it looks like the suppliers are paying or being paid. Um, so th- like that's a, that's a way that People can go, and most advanced economies do have regulations like that in place. Australia is one of the very few that don't, um, and we do have a question mark on how uh, we are going to do the the um, EV transition because um, at the moment we're very much at the back of the pack. Well, that's been a great conversation, guys. We've talked about. Uh, various aspects of the transitioning economy and how we could possibly um, fund it. We didn't get anywhere close to doing it. There's, there's economists that know how to do this very well. But what we did talk about, and thank you so much, we did highlight the fact that whenever someone thinks of, but how are we going to do this? We've highlighted the fact that people are already thinking about that and that it is complex and we're not going to solve it easily, but there's also opportunities and there's uh, particular opportunities for innovations in all aspects of the transitioning economy. Any last comments before we go? I think we're going to be talking about um, the the investment side and the how do you make it all happen um, on, the, on the supply side a lot more over the next couple of years. Um, I think we need to talk about the demand efficiency side as well. Uh, but um, it's a very different conversation than when you're trying to create the demand for for these projects. It's it's the meeting side, meeting the demand, that um, is the immediate challenge. Does the deadline create that that demand? You know, twenty fifty or twenty thirty or whatever. 
So in the long term, yes, it does. In, in the short term, existing commitments and existing energy economics uh, creates a heck of a lot of demand for uh, cleaner energy, um, but uh, a, a, a challenge to, su- to supply that demand without further inflation of costs. Nice wrap up, Paul. The last word goes to you just about. Look, I think it's just, it's a really complex area. I think we're, we're going to see um, missteps and we're going to see wasted resources. Um, uh, no one's got, this is not a 100% foolproof plan into the future of how you do this. We haven't done this before. Um, it's taken many, many, many decades to build up the system we have. We're looking to reverse that within the space of a couple of decades. Um, and so I think one of the things is to also, um, you know, to back genuine intent. I think often what happens is that uh, people who do try to have a go sometimes are kind of seen because they're not 100%, you know, doing renewable energy or something they're pointed at. And I think some of that actually uh, can be uh, quite detrimental to what we're trying to achieve. We're really trying to move people. We want to encourage people. We want to incentivize people. We want to support people to make a genuine uh, transition. Um, uh, the best thing for the energy transition will be when the big oil and gas companies and the big coal companies uh, are now making record profits off of renewables. Um, you know, that's that's that to me will be what success possibly will look like in that. Um, and so, uh, so it's not it's not an either or. It's not it's not moving from one thing to another. It's actually making sure we're managing that process all the way through. Uh, to to get to what we want to get to at the end in a very short space of time. And through all of it, don't just look at it the way it is, but the way it might be. Uh, Henry Ford was was quoted as saying, he probably didn't say it, but he was quoted as saying, um, if I had asked the market what they wanted, they would have said a faster stagecoach. Uh, the idea is look at it completely different. See if you can find where the opportunities are in this massive scale transition to a whole new world thanks guys see you next time yeah thanks james thanks tenant always a pleasure